Today I'm going to do much more of a Bible study uh, than an actual sermon. There's not even a beginning verse to go to. Um, I'd like to, to go to, we're, our first verse is going to be in Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, it's one of the high mountains of the Bible, is the passage where Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac, his son, on the altar. And so I need to give you a little bit of background first. We meet Abraham's family in chapter 11 of Genesis. So this is the same chapter as the Tower of Babel. So very, very early, we meet this family. So at the beginning, we see the garden, we see the first family, we see their descendants, we see the fall of man in chapter 3. And then from chapter 3 to chapter 8, it's just worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And there is a complete worldwide flood in chapter 8. And one family in all of, of humanity is spared uh, that God may, may show his grace to them. And at the end, after all judgment has been uh, put on the earth, this family then repopulates the earth. We see in chapter 11, uh, we meet a man named um, Abram. Later, his name will be changed to Abraham, and his wife is Sarai. Later, her name is changed to Sarah. And they are pagan idol worshipers in what's now Iraq. Okay, so Ur of the Chaldees. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. So that's the area that they were from. And then in chapter 5, we see that he is blessed by God and sent to the west into the, into the land of Canaan. Now Canaan, there's various tribes of Canaanites, 10 or so different people groups that are all in this region occupying what will now be um, Israel or the Promised Land. And God tells him that I'm going to give you a people and go towards the west. And Abraham, just because he believed God, went. Okay, and we'll, we'll, we'll see that. In chapter um, 13, God makes a promise to Abraham that his seed or his descendants will be as numerous as the dirt, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, that if you could count the dirt on the ground, that would be how many descendants that Abraham would have. In chapter 14, we see the king of what would later be Jerusalem, king of Salem, Melchizedek, offers him a tithe, or Abraham offers him a tithe, and Melchizedek blesses him. Very strange. You start getting more and more in-depth into this family, into this one person that God is investing in. In chapter 15, his faith is counted as righteousness. Abraham simply takes God at his word, and his word was that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the heaven and the, and the sand on the beach, and that he believes it. And Abraham's belief in what God said, the simple taking God at his word, was in God's mind the same as Abraham being righteous. So though Abraham was not righteous, his faith counted as righteousness to him. So in, at the end, God reestablishes that covenant, promising him land to his descendants. Everywhere your foot is placed, I'm going to give your descendants this land. Now, you won't receive any of it. The writer of the Hebrews later says that Abraham did not have an inch of ground. Anywhere he put his foot on was not actually his. 
He was a, he was a foreigner. He was a sojourner. He was a, a, a camper. And he, everywhere he went, God blessed him, but he didn't own what God had promised him. But he knew that his descendants would do. In chapter 18, he is promised a son. His wife is now 90 years old, and he is, he is almost 100, and Sarah becomes pregnant. Now, in the meantime, God had changed his name from Abram, which means father exalted or father of many, to Abraham, which means father of many multitudes, father of nations. But yet, in that time, he had no children. So, to already have the name father of many and have no children, and then later God changing your name into many is not good enough for you. I'm going to make you father of multitudes, of nations, and kings will come from you. And it will come through the son that you have with Sarah. And as a 90-year-old lady, she delivers a baby, and they name him Laughter. Isaac means laughter. So he had already had a son through one of his maids, Ishmael. That never actually worked out very well, and they've been fighting ever since. And in chapter 18, the boy is born. When we get to chapter 21, Isaac is, is now born. And in 22, we see that Isaac is probably now about 11, 12, 14 years old. So he's a young teenager. And chapter 22 starts this way. Let's read together. And he said, Now take thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou loves, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went to the place which God had told him of. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, abide here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the word of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son, And he took the fire of his hand and a knife, and they went with him together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here am I. He said, lay not thine hand on the lad, neither do anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld Behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. So we have one of the most unbelievable chapters in the Bible. We see here that Abraham was called on to be, I'd say in terms of faith, there is no saint ever that that went through the struggle 
that you would have to, to chop the wood and then go three days to the mountains of Moriah in order to sacrifice your son that you waited a hundred years for, that God had promised all blessings through. He said, your blessing is not coming through Ishmael that you did by yourself, that you tried to help me, that you tried to fix everything. There is no blessing through there. It will only be through Isaac, Sarah's son, that she bore you when she was 90. And now you have a 12-year-old boy who has not had any children of his own. And he knows that if there is a blessing that God is going to do something, it's going to come through Isaac. Isaac is going to have a child who will have a child who will have a child who will have a child to the point where so many children will be the descendants of Abraham. It would be like counting the stars on a dark night or counting the dirt on the ground. And then... God asks him the most unbelievable thing. Sacrifice him as a whole burnt offering on the mount of Moriah that I will tell you about. I'll show you exactly where it must be. Now, Abraham was real. He wasn't a fictional character. He was a real person. And the torture he must have gone through would have been immense. But the writer of Hebrews said he simply believed God. He simply believed God. It was a simple faith. He knew that God had said all of these promises that I've made to you, which he knew were true, he knew it in himself that it was true, were to come through this boy. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham in his mind thought, well, if I have to kill him, God will simply raise him from the dead. Because if, if he is the one through whom, whom all these blessings come to us and come to the world, then he has to live. He has to have children. And now he doesn't, so I'm just going to go through with what God tells me and let God take care of the rest. Now, God immediately stops him. And we see that this chapter is seriously problematic because God in no place ever condoned human sacrifice. The idea that you would kill your child for God as an act of worship is aberrant to God. In fact, when the prophets are telling the kings of Israel who are burning their sons on uh, altars to demonic gods, I never thought it before, God said. It never entered my mind ever to ask you to kill your children for me. Why would you sacrifice your children as an act of worship to a God who loves you? I can understand uh, to a demon, but to sacrifice your children to God... God said, no, absolutely not. But yet he did tell him to do it. But it's, it's amazing that in, at this, this sets the stage for the gospel in such a strong way because the very thing that Abraham was asked to do, God does. It is God's son that is sacrificed. And we're going to see today that he was sacrificed on this mountain. He was sacrificed on the Mount Moriah that this very spot that God had to tell Abraham where to go was the spot that God's gaze continually dwelt on. So Abraham names the spot. Now, he doesn't name God. If you go through the the chapters of of Genesis, you're going to see everywhere that God did something in Abraham's life, Abraham named God. God, you're this. God, you're this. God, you're this. Everything he experienced as he was experiencing God and everything he learned about God, the new things that was continually coming into his mind, he named God over and over again. 
But in this passage, he names the place, and he names it Jehovah-Jireh. Now, Jehovah is Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. It's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh simply means I am. It's just the to-be verb in, in Hebrew, all it is. And it's, it is first-person singular, I am. So when Moses said, well, who do I tell, you, tell people that sent me? And God said, tell them that I am sent you. I am that I am, or I am who I am, or I am as I am. That is who God is. Now, that kind of theology is explosive in your mind. What does it mean when God expresses his own person as I am? But that's what Jehovah means. So later, the, you have to realize that in Hebrew, there are no vowels. There are only consonants. So if you, if you see the word truck with no U in it, it could be trek or truck or trick. Like, you know all the English words that would start with that combination, and you simply fill in the word that it have to be because there's no consonants in the, in, the, in the language. Now, later in the Middle Ages, they, they added some dots and dashes underneath the continents so that you would know exactly how to say a word. But they never knew this with Yahweh because Yahweh was a name for God. And the Jews revered it to the extent that they would never say it. You would never, ever, ever, even now, a Orthodox Jew would never say Yahweh. It would be the most filthy thing in his mouth. Because how dare me as clay and dirt would say the holy name of God. They would simply refer to it as the name. When a scribe would write what we know now as Jehovah, which the Old Testament is full of the word Jehovah. If we would see the word Jehovah and the, the scribe would be writing it, he would take out and make a new pen. He would make a new pen and he would take it and dip it in fresh ink. He would write one letter and then he would burn the pen and he would make a second pen and he would write the four letters of the word Yahweh. Well, Jehovah is that those same letters transliterated with different vowels. And so what we see in the King James is Jehovah uh, the modern translations use the Lord, the Lord. Well, he is now looking at this and saying, Jehovah will see. Jireh just means see or perceive or look at or consider. And it can also mean provide. Okay? And we use it the same. Country people absolutely do this. I'll see to that. That means I'll take care of that, meaning I'm looking at it and I know the problem and I'll fix the problem. I'll see to it. That's exactly the same idea. Jehovah Jireh means God will look with the understanding that he'll do something about it. The theology here is that God is not someone who creates and then leaves on your own. We're up to our, our, it doesn't matter that he's a watchmaker that ticks that watch and then just backs up and watches it tick. The, the Old Testament and the New Testament fully express God as the most involved. Everything he does, he owns. Everything he owns, he takes care of, and he does it according to his will on his time. He protects, he, he judges, he, he lifts up, he drops down, he makes the life, and he kills. This is the God that this Bible talks about. So Jehovah Jireh means... I will see, says God, I am, with the understanding that I'm going to intervene, that I'm going to do something, 
that I'm going to care for you, that I'm going to put, interpose myself in your problem. And what he does is he looks up and he sees a ram caught by his horns, and he sacrifices the ram in the stead of his son. Instead of his son, there was a substitute on this mountain. Instead of Abraham's son that God promised him that was laughter to him, there was a substitute. And God God showed himself to Abraham that day, and he showed himself to us that day. Do you remember what he told the young men? He said, we will come and worship, and then we'll come back to you, both of us. He knew that. And Isaac is looking and he's saying, I see the knife, I see the wood, I see the fire. Where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. God will be the sacrifice. You do not need to sacrifice yourself. You do not need to sacrifice your children. God will be the sacrifice you need, and you do need it. You are wrong in your life. You are wrong in your mind. You are wrong in your theology. You are wrong in your practices, and you have offended a holy God. And it takes God providing himself a lamb. If we are to come to him, and he calls us to him, we're commanded to come to him. It's not just it would be nice. God commands us to come to him and worship him appropriately, and that's impossible for sinners. But God provided a lamb, and we're going to see today, this is where he provided it. So I'm going to just pause. Now, you realize I did not exposit that. I did not open that passage up to you at all. I basically just presented it. I want you to go to a new book. Go to the book of First Chronicles. Now, we have the history books. After, after the, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you have Joshua that takes over the land. Then you have Judges, which are after the time of Joshua, and it's basically the, the people are in pain. They call out to God. God raises up a judge to defend them. Then they just go into the big circle again. Okay, And th- their religion is degraded. They're not really worshiping a true God. They are simply God's people that he is called by his name and he's taking care of people who don't even acknowledge him in their lives, that he's just a superstition to them. Then we get into the book of Samuel. First and second Samuel show God's intervention. We have now the prophets. And you have actually four books of the kings. In the Jewish Bible, you had kings one, two, three, and four. In our Bible, we call it First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. So there's actually four books of the kings, and we see in First Samuel we meet the first king Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then we continue, and it goes all the way through the kings. After kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second uh, Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Chronicles re- goes back to to David again, and so you're you're like. It's almost a harmony. If you were to read First and Second, especially Second Samuel, and you were to read First and Second Chronicles, the same events happen with the same characters. You're looking into the life of David. You're looking into Saul chasing him down. You're looking at the death of Saul. All this is happening in both of these books. And what we see is Chronicles was written after the captivity. So the four books of the kings were before they were sent to Babylon. And they return from Babylon, and the writers now look back into hundreds of years ago, ancient history, and they write about their first king, David. And as it's opened up, we see really into David's heart and mind. Some of the things that we see in Chronicles it is kind of left open in, in Samuel. So this is near the end 
of 1 Chronicles. All right? So this is starting in verse 1. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. So we have a census. Now, we're going to see that if you go back to this corresponding passage in Samuel, it says, and the Lord provoked David to number Israel. So you're like, whoa. One one passage says that God is responsible for this, and the other parallel passage says that Satan is responsible for this, and that, that David numbers or makes a census of all the fighting men of Israel. So he wants to know what his assets are. He wants to know if I need to put together a standing army or a militia or even a reserve army, how many people are we talking about? And he wants to know the entire, all of the tribes. Now it says here, okay, in ver- uh, next verse, and David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Now Joab answered. Now Joab is his general. And I don't trust Joab ever. In my mind, Joab always has a black hat on. He is the guy that, in my opinion, is always after Joab. He, he's taking care of number one. Uh, I, I just don't trust him. But in this passage, Joab is very, he's a very smart man, and he's a good general, and he realizes that this is an affront to God. You are not to do this. David was ne- never to to number them because you don't trust in the Syrians. Remember Asa? You don't trust in the Syrians. You don't trust in the physicians. You trust in the Lord, and that is God, that's what God's people are called to. And David was counting noses. Would I win? Would I have more troops than the people I'm hoping to invade? Or would, if they invaded me, would I be able to whoop them up? Could I defend us? He wanted to know. He was becoming a very mature king. He was towards the end of his life. He was an old man. And he forgets that it's God who protects. If, if the builders of the house is not the Lord, the builders are building in vain. And if you take care of a house and it's not God taking care of it, your security system is silly. Okay? And nothing is going to happen unless God is actually doing it. And David needs to be reminded of that. So Joab is basically trying to put the, the, the brakes on. The Lord make a, uh, people a hundred times so many more as they be, but my Lord, the king, they are not the Lord's servants. Why do you then require this thing? Why be the cause of trespass to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Joab gave the son of the number of people to David, and they were uh, uh, of Israel were a thousand thousand and a hundred thousand men that drew a sword and Judah was 400, uh, threescore and ten men that drew the sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. You have to remember, Chronicles was written after the, the captivity. And after Solomon, you had Judah and Benjamin in the south, and you had Israel in the north. They were split. So the writers of the Chronicles said from Judah and Benjamin and from Israel, but they were not split at the time of David. But this is, this is their, their mind here. And not only did he want to know everybody in every tribe, he wanted to know how many were in the Levites. The Levites would never be in an army. The Levites only belonged to God. When God punished the Egyptians and killed the firstborn, he spared all the firstborn of the, of the Hebrews. And a, after that, he said, you belong to me. You should have died. You were a firstborn. You should have died. 
you did not die, you belong to me. And after that, he substituted the firstborn with the Levites. He took one tribe out and he said, you're exclusively for me. Your job is to, is, is to see to my tabernacle and to teach the people my laws and requirements. That's what you're to do. They would have never been called out to an army. But David was like, no, really, if everybody was in the army, how big of an army would I have? You see, this is, this is detestable to God. And, this, and, and God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he smote Israel. And David, said to, uh, and, and David said unto God, I've sinned greatly because I've done this thing. Now I beseech thee, do, do, the, uh, do away with the iniquity of thy servant, for I've done very foolishly. Go and tell David, saying, uh, Thus saith the Lord, I offer three things. Choose thee one of them that I may do to thee. So Gad is the prophet. He's the seer. And God sent Gad to David. And he said, I'm going to give you three choices. Okay? I offer three things. Choose one of them that I may do to thee. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Choose thee either three years famine or three year, uh, months to be destroyed before thy foes while that the sword of thine enemies overtake thee or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself, what word shall I bring again him that sent me? And David said unto Gad, I'm at a great strait. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of, of man. So the Lord sent pestilence. So David said, oh, I can't be trusted. If you send a famine, I'm a smart man and I have lots of contacts. I'll simply try to connive it to lessen the effect. I know how to trade. I know how to, to, to make up favors. I know the countries around about. All of these are vassal states. I'll alleviate. If God is punishing me, then I want to be punished. And I don't want to try to get out of it. So I don't want to choose the famine. And the sword, if, if uh, the enemies, I have really good generals. And it's possible that the generals on the other side are stupid. It might be that they'll simply make a tactical error and we'll win. So... No, I don't want a war. I'll take the pestilence. I'll take the plague. Because then, who stands up against a plague? Everybody just is equal footing. Everybody doesn't know what they just touched or what they just breathed. It comes in and you die. And that's the way a plague works. He said, let me fall into the hand of the Lord. And God sent his angel uh, to Jerusalem to destroy 70,000 men. Sorry, uh, sent his angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld and repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, it's enough. Now stay thine hand. So he gets so far and God stops the angel. Now he doesn't stop the judgment. He just pauses it. He puts everything on pause and the angel is in the act of actually, it's almost like an east, west, north, south, left, right kind of thing. The, there's an angel, a death-destroying angel, who is going through the land. And in his sword, whatever that represents, people are dying of the plague. And as he passes, more people are attacked, and more people are attacked, and people are dying. And 70,000 people have already uh, dropped over. And God said, stop. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and the heaven, having a sword drawn in his hand and stretched it out over Jerusalem. So he was not swiping with the sword, 
but he had a drawn sword, and he was, at, he was in Jerusalem, and he was as far as this man's, um, this man's farm. Now, Mount Zion was Jebus. The Jebusites lived in what's now Jerusalem, and David conquered this town. It was now called the city of David. So the Jebusites had been conquered, and they lived. They were now, David was his king. And so this angel is as far as this man's farm, which is on the top of Mount Zion. Mount Zion was a citadel, and this man's farm was right there. And David saw this angel. Now, I don't know what it means. Between heaven and earth, a 20-foot angel, a 15-foot angel, David looked right at it. And he knew, and he was, had his sword drawn, pointing towards the, towards the town, but he was not swiping. God had stopped it, okay? And then David lifted his eyes, saw it between having a sword drawn, stretched over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even it is I that have sinned and done evil indeed. But these are these sheep. What have they done? Let thine hand be on me, I pray thee, Lord, my God, be on me and my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. So David immediately cries out and takes full responsibility. It was my doing. These people are dropping dead for something I did. Let your judgment be on me. Let it be on my house. Now you have to realize God answered that prayer. The house of David is the direct line of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is of the direct line of the house of David. All of the judgment that was stopped at this point in the threshing floor, threshing floor is just where you take wheat or barley or whatever grain it is, and you're throwing it up in the air and separating the chaff, which is heavy, or the grain, which is heavy, and the chaff just blows away. So you're separating out to get grain to put in a bucket. And it's just a wooden floor on on the ground, and right at this point, he's looking at the angel face to face. And he says, and, and the angel is stopped in judgment. David said, no, put it on me. Put it on my family, not on your people. Your people, would you protect them? So chapter 21, verse 18, then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, immediately sends the prophet, David, go up and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons hid themselves. Now Ornan, the farmer, and his boys looked, and there's the angel. And they were petrified. Everybody that's seen an angel are petrified. They know they're going to die. And Ornan was threshing wheat. And David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David and went out to the threshing port and bowed himself to to David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me this place, this threshing floor, that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it to me for full price, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said to David, Oh, take it. Let it, my Lord, do which is good. I'll give you the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing instruments for the wood and the wheat as a meat offering. I give it all. So the farmer's like, No, 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 you take it. Take it all. Take it. And David said, No, full price. 24. And the king said to Ornan, No. But verily I will buy it for full price, for I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor the burnt offerings without cost. I'm not going to offer something to God that costs you something and me nothing. It must cost me everything. So David gave to Ornan of the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. Now, I don't know if that hits you. That is an absolute fortune. He paid a billion dollars for this farm 
on the top of Mount Zion. He said, no, 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 full price. Let it cost whatever it costs. He made, he made this man the richest man in the world. The, and he took it, and he now owned this farm. And David built there an offering to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord, and he answered him by fire upon the burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel, oh my goodness, He put up his sword again into the sheep. God stopped it. It wasn't just paused. He stopped it. The judgment that was on his people was stopped. And at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, then he made sacrifice there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that season in the high place of Gibeon. You remember it was in a tent that traveled from place to place. There was never a permanent place place for the tabernacle or for the holy of holies and he said david would not go to inquire of god because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the lord so david said this is the house of the lord god and this is the altar of burnt offering for israel this is where god put away his judgment this is where judgment was stopped this is god's house this is the place this right here Go to 2 Chronicles, one verse in chapter 3. David is now dead, and he has completely filled uh, uh, storehouses with stuff that was going to build the temple. So this is now 2 Chronicles 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David, his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son on a top of Mount Moriah, which later becomes a Canaanite's farm, that David is now on this farm and is watching God's judgment being stopped. And so he realizes that this is where God stops judgment. This must be where the Holy of Holies is to be permanently. And his son Solomon starts building the temple, and that threshing floor becomes the Holy of Holies inside the temple. And Jerusalem is built around the temple. The back wall of the temple is the back wall of the city. The city stretches out in front of the temple, and the temple stops the city. Everything goes towards the temple on Mount Zion. That's the highest hill in the southeast corner of the city, and the city stops. The same place later was known by the Romans as Calvary. Calvo in Latin means bald. So there was an outcropping on the other side of the wall that the temple was on, on the other side that looked like a skull. It had a bald head. That's why they called it Calvo. They called it Bald Hill because it looked kind of like a bald man. And that was the place that Jesus Christ was crucified. John, remember, says... Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Remember that? He looked at Jesus. This is Luke 23. And when they were come to that place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors on the right and left. The crucifixion took place 50 yards, 100 yards, 200 yards from the Holy of Holies, out the back gate of the city, which was built on the foundation of the, of the temple. And 
Jesus was crucified on Mount Moriah. Jesus was crucified to the place where God stops judgment. Do you see it? Abraham had a substitute for the death of his son. It happened there. That was where the substitute was made. It was made on that hill. David saw it as a stopping point of God's judgment, and Solomon put the mercy seat there. The mercy seat was the place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in an orb, in a glowing orb above that box, right there on that spot. Do you see? Jesus Christ did all of that. Jesus Christ is the substitutionary atonement. He is the place where God stops his judgment. He is the place where God dwells. And do you see? At that point when he was crucified, everything changes. This whole story that I've been giving you completely changed because God looked away. For the first time in history, God did not look at real estate. He didn't look at a quarter acre of land. He didn't look at a yard with a hill on it. He looked away from his son. He was naked and exposed on a criminal's cross, and for hours and hours it was dark. He endured the very wrath of God, the wrath that every man would experience for eternity in hell, all at once on the precious son of Jesus, of of God, on Jesus' beautiful head. And he stood there on the cross, and then the earth shook. The whole cosmos convulsed. The, the, The lights went out. The sun stopped shining. The ground trembled. Everything about the universe stopped. Because God no longer was looking. He looked away. He couldn't stand it. God was gagging with revulsion as he looked upon Jesus, who he loves. This is Matthew 27. And about the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock in the afternoon, with a loud voice crying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the veil of the temple rips. From top to bottom. Do you see it? At that moment, the veil of the temple ripped. The access to a holy God is now completely open to all of God's people. The people that were dropping dead, the people that should have been sacrificed, the people that should have been on the cross, those people were now free. And the dead came out of their graves. And you have full access to God and are commanded to come and worship in freedom And in absolute joy, this is John 14, Jesus answered and said, If a man love me and will keep my words, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Do you see? The Father's gaze now redirected because the Father's gaze is always at Christ. Christ is the center of everything. Ephesians says that he fills the universe All things are filled with Christ. There is nothing that God loves except the Lord Jesus and those that are tied to him by faith. That's who God loves. And he will always be looking at Christ. When he looked away as he was on the cross, he then redirects because he came out of the grave. He came out of the grave alive. And that living, lively man is where God is looking. And if if he is in you, by faith, then God is looking at you and his gaze is full with no threat, no dread. There's no feeling of dread. This is 2 Corinthians 6. You are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and be their God and they shall be my people. Do you see? He remembers his covenants. He remembered the rainbow. 
He remembered the blood on the door. He remembered the indwelling life of his son. You are safe. If you're trusting him, you're safe. Your life is fun, then you die. And it, you're safe forever. It, it, it's, it's unmistakable that we should live in a, in, a, in a fear, in a glum. Why? The Lord is near. Rest. You're free. He is looking at you with favor. He is not looking away. During the times that you would come up to Jerusalem to worship, you would sing the Psalms starting in the 60s, 60s, 70s, and 80s of Psalms. They're called the Ascent Psalms. Everybody would simply sing them as the, the roads were crowded with people all coming up to the festivals. And this is Psalm 84, right in the very middle of Psalm 84. Behold our God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. Do you see it? Jesus is a shield. And God's face is continuously on your shield. You're loved, you're accepted, you're rewarded, you're encouraged. And that's why we're here. We make big of our Savior. He did big, big things for us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we tremble at your word as we know what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. On this hill and now in our lives, we thank you that you are not limited to a plot of, of ground in Palestine with a gift shop and a snack bar, but that you have now directed your gaze to every one of your people that are indwelt by the spirit of your son. And we just want to rejoice together to, to today and say thank you, sir. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your power. And thank you for your promises that are to us forever. Let us hold on to them, we beg. In Jesus' name, amen.